So yeah, I'm feeling it today. So you may have to bear with me. As I've mentioned to you several times, of late, the young adults are presently reading through Francis Chan's book entitled Crazy Love. Francis Chan is a well-known pastor and author in the States. We just finished chapter 7, which may contain the best line in the book. In chapter 7, regarding Christians, Chan says this, something is wrong when our lives make sense to unbelievers. Amen? If we've read our Bibles, we get that, that there's something seriously wrong if we call ourselves Christians, but our lives are virtually indistinguishable from those who are unbelievers. Chan goes on to tell how one of his professors in Bible college asked this question, what are you doing right now in your life that requires faith? So I'll let you think about that for a minute. What is it you're doing right now in your life that requires faith? That Something that any old unbeliever couldn't do because he has no faith. What is it in your life right now that magnifies Christ in your faith? Chan said he realized when the professor asked him that question that there was really nothing going on in his life that required any faith at all. He said he was greatly convicted by that. And then he writes maybe the second best line in the book. He writes, I probably wouldn't be living very much differently if I didn't believe in God at all than the way I was living as a Christian. So, I want you to think about what he's saying. He's saying there really isn't any outward, visible, tangible indication that I follow Jesus at all. Once I leave the church, nobody could see it. Nobody could see it in my life. Which brings me back around to the best line in the book. Something's wrong when our lives make sense to unbelievers. Beloved, something is wrong when there's no outward, visible, tangible indication that I love Christ and I am following Him. There's something wrong. If the world is not seeing that, Every single day you roll out of bed. If your family and your co-workers, your friends, your fellow students, if they're not seeing this, Chan is right. Something is wrong. Then Chan says, and I'm not going to read the whole book to you. Then Chan says, today Christians seem to like to play it safe. So let me ask you, is that your observation? Do you agree that Many in the professed church like to play it safe when they follow Jesus. Do most professing Christians you know, do they play it safe in following Jesus? And maybe the most important question for you to consider, are you playing it safe? 
in following Jesus Christ. It reminds me, and I think I've shared this with you numerous times, but you remember Susan's question in the Chronicles of Narnia when she found out that Aslan was a lion. Do you remember? Do you remember her question to Mr. Beaver? Zippy knows. Susan found out he was a lion and she goes, is he safe? And what was Mr. Beaver's response? Of course not. Of course he's not safe. <laughs> he's a lion! Of course he's not safe! But he's good. He's good. As we've gone through 1 Peter, we've realized, if we've been listening at all, we realize it's not always safe. It's not always safe to go with Jesus. As I told you a couple of weeks ago, Daniel was delivered, but Stephen was stoned. If you're principally interested in safe, biblical Christianity is not for you. Now, pseudo-Christianity will work fine for you. You just show up at church, you do some stuff, and you leave. That's pseudo-Christianity. Both Eastern Orthodox, Catholic, and cotton candy Protestant, you name it. If you're just showing up for church, you do some stuff and then you leave, and it doesn't impact your life, that is false Christianity. It's pseudo. It's false. It has nothing to do with being a disciple of Jesus. It has nothing to do with walking with Christ. So if you're interested in safe, you can't go with Christ. <laughs> you can't. It's just who He is. There's this undeniable and disconcerting wildness to Christ. It's like the song says, He is untamable. <laughs> He's untamable. And you can't play it safe and really walk with Him. You can't. It's a sham. It's a sham. God's unpredictability is splashed all over the pages of Scripture. It is who He is. He is not a safe God. But He is an infinitely good and faithful God. I think this is why many in the modern church profess to be Christians, but they never actually get around to obeying Jesus. It's the $3 worth of God thing. This is an old poem. Probably most of you have never heard of it. An old preacher named Wilbur Reese, he lampooned this play-it-safe mentality in a short, short poem. Let me just read a few lines to you. He says it this way, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep or change my life. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. <laughs> now there's pseudo-Christianity for you. Show up on Sunday and get $3 worth of God, leave the church, go out in the world, and live like the world. Yeah, that's $3 worth of God. That's what $3 worth of God will get you. 
Pseudo-Christianity. You know, the, the, kind that, the kind of Christianity that's safe. The kind that doesn't change your life. The kind that requires no real faith at all. The kind that makes perfect sense to your friend who is an unbeliever. Pseudo-Christianity. No born-again believer wants $3 worth of God. He wants all of God He can get. And He knows it will take a billion eternities to get all of God I can get. <laughs> He's an infinite God. He's an infinite God. We want Him above all things. We desire Him above all things. We seek Him above all things. It's a love affair with Jesus. We are stunned with this God. We are stunned at who He is and what He's done. We are stunned in our tracks. God, help us if we just want $3 worth of God. We've not met Him yet, if that's how we think. We've not met Him yet. I was meditating it right before I came on the sermon tonight. I was thinking about that old sermon, that, pardon me, the old hymn that uh, Charles Wesley wrote, And Can It Be? It's an old one. You may not know it. He wrote this, For me, who Him to death pursued amazing love, how can it be that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Three dollars worth of God? you got to be kidding me, man. I want all of that God. I want all He'll give to me. I don't care if it's safe or not. I don't care if it's conventional or not. I don't care. I want King Jesus. And I'm going to live for Him. I'm going to live for Him. It's like we talked about last week. We love Him. It's like uh, Paolo said. We love Him. <laughs> we do. It's not about religion. It's about this beautiful God. And because... We've, as we saw last week in 1 Peter 3.15, we've sanctified Christ as Lord in our hearts. This is not just meaningless, obligatory, compulsory religious talk. We don't call Him Lord because we should. We call Him Lord because He is. And I shared with you last week a couple of verses. I'm just going to touch on those again. Uh, Psalm 99, the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He's enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. He is the Lord God of heaven and earth. As Isaiah says, God says, I am the Lord. There is no other. I am God. There is no one like me. David said it perfectly. First Chronicles 29, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, Thine, uh, thine is the dominion, O Lord. And Thou dost exalt Thyself as head over all and dost rule over all. King Jehoshaphat said it perfectly as well. O Lord, Thou art God in heaven. Thou art ruler over all kingdoms and nations. Power and might are in Thy hand so that no one can stand against Thee. Nebuchadnezzar said it too. For God's dominion is an everlasting dominion. He does according to His will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, none can stay His hand. He's Lord. I could preach 
probably the rest of my life on that one verse. He is Lord. And if you've really sanctified Him as Lord in your hearts, you will not be intimidated by the world. You will not be afraid. You will be zealous for that which is good. Verse 13. He's bigger than all of that. He's bigger than any fear. It may well up in you. We're, we're made of flesh and the fear wells up sometimes. But what do we do with it? We get in front of King Jesus with it. If we look at King Jesus, the fear has to run. It can't stand in front of Jesus. It has to run. Before King Jesus, angels, devils, demons, presidents, popes, kings, and all men, they're less than grasshoppers. Less than grasshoppers before this great Lord of heaven and earth. Three dollars worth of God, you've got to be kidding me. Play it safe with Jesus, you've got to be kidding me. Live like the world, there's no way. I can't live that small anymore, right? We've met the eternal God, the infinite God, the Creator God. I can't live that small anymore. I can't live for that small stuff anymore. It's just too small. I can't do it. I want all of Jesus I can get. If we've sanctified Christ in our hearts as Lord, as you know, those of you who are in here tonight and are born again, you know everything changed. Everything changed. And unbelievers around us, they think we're a little bit crazy, that's good. If the unbelievers around you don't think you're a little bit crazy, you're probably not walking with Jesus. Um, very seriously. They're supposed to think we're a little bit crazy. It would lead them to ask questions like this in verse 15. What is this hope that you have within you? What is it? Why do you live this way? Why do you talk this way? Why do you do that? Why do you refuse to do that? Why do you feel this way? Beloved, they should be asking us. They should be asking us. Let's revisit the illustrations that we used last week. A boy named David stepped in front of a giant. Now that raises a few questions, doesn't it? Doesn't that raise a few questions? The widow threw in her last two coins into the temple treasury. Now there's a few more questions. Mary's worship cost her a year's wages. There's a few more questions. And Peter got out of a boat in the middle of the sea. Some huge questions for Peter. Are you seeing the connection between verses 13 and 14 with verse 15? If we are zealous for what is good, verse 13, if we are living fearlessly in the face of persecution, verse 14, our very lives should raise the question, why do you live like this? Why do you live like this? Our lives should raise the question of verse 15. David, what makes you think you can fight a giant? Widow, 
What are you doing giving away all that you have to God? Mary, why are you being so extravagant with this carpenter from Nazareth? And Peter, have you lost your mind? These are the kinds of questions that the world should be asking of us. Let me ask you, what question does your life raise in the minds of the unbelievers around you? Let me just ask you, what question is raised in the mind of your average unbeliever out there who closely observes how you live and how you speak and how you conduct yourself out in the world? David, the widow, Mary, Peter, their lives were their opening arguments in their evangelism. I think this is why much of our evangelism falls flat. We try to tell it before we ever try to live it. We try to tell it before we ever try to live it. How does the old adage go? Preach the Gospel at all times. Does anybody know? If necessary, that's right, Don. If necessary, use words. What's he saying to us? Live it. Live it. This is your, your, your first argument in your evangelism. I live it. I live the Word of my great God. Doctrinal arguments about our hope in God, they're hugely important. They're essential. But lifestyles that reveal our hope in God, they are indispensable. Beloved, of course, we need to be biblically literate. We need to be students of the Word. We need to be able to, to know and understand and speak about the weighty doctrines, doctrines of Scripture. We need to be able to verbally communicate and defend the Gospel. But our first and best argument is always how we live. It's how we live. <laughs> and people should be asking you, what, what's up with you? What is this hope you have? So, I'm going to make one long parenthetical comment, okay? And here, I'm going to start right here. Um, each one of you should have a biblically sound, coherent, and relatively brief testimony that you can share with people who ask you about the hope that is within you. If you haven't done the work, sit down and write it out. I think the key thing is that it's biblically sound, that it's personal, that it's coherent, and that it's relatively short. I, in my profession, as you might suspect, I often ask people uh, to share their testimony with me. Tell me how you became a Christian. And I, I find that many testimonies that I hear are quite muddled. Uh, they're, they're confused, they're confused, they're a little bit unclear. I hear things like this, well, when I was a young boy, I prayed a prayer to receive Christ. Or I was baptized as a child, or I joined the church with my family. Something like, I received Jesus as Savior when I was a boy, but I've never followed Him since. I've never really lived for Him since. I profess to be a Christian, but... I've never really lived like one. To paraphrase Chan's words, that life looks just like an unbeliever. Beloved, let me tell you, if your life looks just like an unbeliever, that's what you are. You're an unbeliever. 
Now you may be religious. You may be a religious unbeliever. You may say the right words. You may parrot the right words. But it goes back to Matthew 7. Many will say to Jesus on that day, Lord, Lord. And what will Jesus say? I don't know who you are. You didn't belong to me. You never followed me. You never really loved me. It was about you and about your religion. It never was about me. Many testimonies I hear, they have this disconnect to what the Bible says about true conversion. Namely, that you can somehow receive Jesus as Savior, but never ever follow Him as Lord. Beloved, that's a lie. That's biblically unintelligible. You can't find that in Scripture anywhere. The Bible doesn't talk like this. I know that many denominations have propagated this kind of muddle, but you can't find it in the Bible. Conversion is not merely acquiescing to historical facts, praying a prayer, joining a church, and getting baptized. Millions have done that, and their lives still make sense to unbelievers. There's been no real change. True conversion. Well, Jesus said it to Nicodemus, you must be born again. <laughs> God could care less about your religion. I'll go further. God hates it. God hates your pseudo-Christianity. God hates pseudo-Christianity. God hates all kinds of false religion. But He loves every man, woman, boy, and girl who will repent of their sins and come to Jesus. He loves them eternally. He loves them infinitely. <laughs> True conversion. You've actually met Christ and you quite literally are falling in love with Him. You, can't, you almost can't help yourself. He's so beautiful. He's so compelling. He's so desirable. True conversion, you really get a sense of how ugly your sin is and how desperately you need Christ. True conversion, you begin to think differently about every aspect of your life. True conversion, you begin to see everything in your life in relation to Christ. Everything in relation to Christ. My marriage, my singleness, my career, my sexuality, my money, my speech, my leisure, my politics, my trials, my illnesses, my thought patterns, my entertainment, my hopes, my plans, my dreams, etc., 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 etc. I see it all in relation to Jesus. All of it. Because, oh, He's my Lord. It belongs to Him. I'm to be an expression of who He is. That's why I'm on the planet. I'm an expression of who Christ is. That's true conversion. Close parentheses. There are 101 things that I could say about that. Let me just interject again. John 10. This is a perfect snapshot of true conversion. Jesus says in John 10, you know the text, Jesus says, My sheep hear Me. I know My sheep. My sheep know Me. And what do My sheep do? Someone tell me. They go to church on Sunday. And they do religious stuff. Right? Now, what does it say? They follow Me. My sheep follow Me. They follow me. They do what I say. 
albeit imperfectly. They follow me. They love me and they follow me. That's true conversion. So I want to exhort you, if your, if your testimony is muddled, clean it up. Get in the Word of God. Pray about it. Clean it up. So you can give it an effective defense to anyone who asks about the hope that resides in you. This is God's command to His people. Are you ready to obey it? Are you ready to give a good defense to everyone who asks about the hope that is within you? Beloved, I just want to encourage you to go to work on your testimony if you need to. And every day be ready. Be ready to share your hope. This next point here, we're to be ready to give an account of the hope that is within us. Now, there's 25 sermons right there. So, obviously, I feel hamstrung. Um, but I'll just do it as quickly as I can. Just make a few brief comments. First, let me ask you, why would the first century Christian reading this letter have unbelievers asking them about their hope? What is the historical context of this book and why would unbelievers be asking these first century Christians about their hope? Anybody know? What's going on in their lives? What have we been talking about for a couple of months now? Persecution. They're being persecuted. As we've talked about numerous times, some of these Christians have lost everything. They've lost everything. They've had family members enslaved. They've had family members in prison. They've had family members killed. They've lost everything. And they're holding fast. They're holding fast to Jesus. And the unbelievers are going, what are you doing? How can you love Him like that? Look what's going on in your life. So this is the backdrop. This is the backdrop of what we're seeing here in verse 15. Beloved, it's one of the reasons, we've talked about this many times in, throughout First Peter, it's one of the reasons that God will let the trial come into your life. The trial is a platform for everyone in your life to understand that Jesus is real. And that, yea, though He slay me, as Job says, yea, though He slay me, I will hope in God. Amen? There's a born-again soul. Religious people can't talk like that. They think it's crazy. Man, what are you talking about? Yea, though He slay me, I will hope in God. Him. You remember what uh, Jesus told the disciples? I've mentioned this several times in this series. Luke 21, 13. He says, man, the persecution is going to come down on you. And remember what He said? He said, this is your opportunity to tell about Me. And I've been telling you, when the, when the heat comes, when the persecution comes, you're not supposed to be surprised. You're supposed to be ready. This is the time to stand and hold fast to Jesus Christ. And the world's supposed to say, man, what's going on with you? How can you stand? How can you have hope in the face of what you're... How can you do it? Beloved, it's, it's about evangelism. The psalmist says, when my soul is in despair, I hope in God. Psalm 42, 
And you guys know the famous text, Lamentations 3. Jeremiah says, I am filled with bitterness. I have forgotten happiness. My strength has perished. My soul is bowed down within me. But this I recall to my mind. Therefore, I have hope. What does he remember? The Lord's loving kindnesses, plural, indeed never cease, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in Him. This is the way Christians live. Good day, praise God. Hard day, praise God. If you're having a hard day, you may need a brother or sister to come alongside. That's fine. But praise God! Your trial is a platform to make much of Christ. In the midst of the pain and the struggle and the hurt, this is how the born-again soul navigates the hard times. We hope in this great, sovereign, infinitely good and faithful God. And did you notice in the passage there at the end of verse 15 how we're supposed to share this hope? How are we supposed to do it? Someone tell me. How are we supposed to do it? What does it say in verse 15? With gentleness and reverence or gentleness and respect. In seminary, I saw a course offering called Confrontational Evangelism. I did not take that course. That is an oxymoron. If you read your Bible at all, you understand you cannot debate or argue anyone into the Gospel. You cannot do it. What are we to do? We just sow good seed. That's what we do. We sow good seed. We, te- we share the truth. We share Scripture with people. If they'll hear it, we sow it. We, we, we sow good seed. We can't convert anybody. It's not our job to convert anybody. You're not supposed to convert anybody. God converts people. It's a supernatural miracle. He's the only one that can do it. You can't born anybody again. You can't do it. You can sow good seed through which God may do it. But we, we sow the truth with gentleness and with reverence. Paul told Timothy how to do it. And this is a verse that really informs how I do ministry. And how I evangelize. I'll just share it with you. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. I may be loud sometimes in the pulpit, but if you know me outside the pulpit, I'm not quarrelsome. Be kind to all. Be able to teach. Be patient when wronged. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. Why? Why do we do it this way? Perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by Him to do His will. God has to do all the heavy lifting. All I have to do is share truth. I share truth. God does everything else. This is who we are to be, beloved. With gentleness and with reverence. So we make our defense of the Gospel First, with our lives that make no sense to unbelievers. And secondly, with our 
biblically accurate, clear, concise, coherent testimony. And we do it with kindness and patience and gentleness and reverence. You know, when you get the right view of how God saves a man, it, it really frees you up. You can, just, you can just love this person and pray for this person and be long-suffering with this person. It can be years and you can just continue to hope and pray and sow seed. You don't get frustrated. Maybe you do sometimes. But ultimately, this is God's business. You just keep loving them and praying for them and sharing the truth with them and leave the rest with God. We sow seed. God regenerates. We sow seed. God grants repentance. We sow seed. He gives faith. Verse 16. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile you, your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. We all know what a conscience is. It's that great gift from God. What C.S. Lewis calls the law of human nature. We intuitively know what is right and what is wrong. We intuitively know it. No man has to tell us. We know it. Now, we can sear that conscience and we can, as Romans 1 chapter, uh, Romans, uh, chapter 1 says, we can hold down the truth. We can, we can suppress the truth. and Most men do this. But God has designed the human race with a conscience. And as a Christian, our conscience is either affirming our actions or condemning them. If we are in sin, our conscience will haunt us. Haunt us. If we are confessing and forsaking our sin and keeping short accounts with God, our conscience will affirm us. Peter says, keep or maintain a good or clear conscience before God. In other words, deal with our sin with confession and repentance, cooperate with the Holy Spirit in our sanctification, giving ourselves to the Word of God, growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. If we're doing these things, we will strengthen our faith and walk with God. If we are not doing these things, we will weaken our faith and our walk with God. What Peter's saying to us here, a clear conscience is another weapon in the face of persecution. A clear conscience is another weapon. A good conscience is a valuable ally when we are slandered and reviled. And what has God been saying to us all the way through 1 Peter about how we are to respond to men who treat us unjustly, who insult us, who slander us, who revile us, persecute us, and perpetrate evil against us? How are we supposed to respond? What's he been saying to us? Who's our, who are we to imitate? Who's our model? Jesus Christ. We are to imitate Jesus Christ. First Peter chapter two verse twenty-one. Jesus Christ is our example. And we learned something about how Jesus did this. Of course, he was the God Man. But there's some really helpful information here. Verse 23, First Peter chapter 2, verse 23, He entrusted Himself to the Father. <laughs> you can live this, this supernatural miracle that God's calling us to live, which is to, as we saw, 
uh, over in chapter 3, verse 9, to when we are attacked, when we are insulted, we are to give a blessing. I told you when I preached that text that I, I'm ready, man. I, I can't wait. I can't wait till somebody just really unloads on me. I mean, I, on the one hand, I'm not looking forward to it. On the other hand, God's brought me to a new place on this. He's kind of working on me, maybe like He's working on Krista. I don't know. Like you said earlier, Krista. I want to bless this person. You know? You know, we need to be spring-loaded to bless this person who attacks us and who reviles us and who insults us. This is what the Lord has called us to do. So it's one of those powerful, unforgettable, providential ways your life is not supposed to make any sense to an unbeliever. When you're attacked, you bless. When people take, you give. When people hurt, you show compassion. This is what Jesus has called us to do. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. It's hard for me. It is not easy for me. I've struggled with this for a long time. But I am so convicted now. I just think it's going to be fun to give a blessing next time it happens. I can't wait to give the blessing. We need to be thinking like this, beloved. So when the hard day comes, as Jesus, as it says here in 1 Peter 2.23, we entrust ourselves to our great God. We entrust our confusion, our pain, our loss, and our tears to God. And when the hard day comes, we do not doubt Him. We do not question Him. We do not murmur against Him. What do we do? What does the text say? We hope in Him. We hope in Him. And beloved, your hope is not wasted. <laughs> He's an almighty God. He's not God in name only. He's God indeed. He is God. So when the hard days come, and they do come to all men, we understand that. Hard days come to all men. But as Christians, we understand sometimes they come to us simply because we are Christians. This is what the Word of God has told us. Susan was right to ask about the safety of walking with Aslan. She was right to ask that question. It's not always safe. It's not supposed to be safe. God wants to do something in your life when it's not safe. Something bigger than He could do when you're in a nice shady spot. Something bigger in your heart. Something bigger in your mind. Something bigger in your soul. Something bigger in the life of those around you who observe what you go through and how you hope in God. And that's, that's the beautiful thing about a trial in a Christian's life, right? We know God's in it, and we know God's doing something in it. You know, the unbeliever, it's just all pain. It's just, it's just meaningless pain, right? It's meaningless pain. But for the believer, well, as we talked about last week, we count it all joy when we encounter various trials because all of this we've been talking about is true. So Francis Chan says, and I think he's right, something's wrong when our lives make sense to unbelievers. So I'm going to challenge you as I close. If you claim to be a Christian tonight, don't 
be guilty of letting your life make sense to unbelievers. You're supposed to smell like God in the world. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget your job description. Smell like God in the world. Make much of Christ in the world. Live it first, tell it second. Don't be guilty of playing it safe with Jesus. Give yourself away to Christ. No half measures with Jesus. He is God, and I'm going to live like He's God. Not like He's a religious icon, but like He's God. He is Lord. This is not some religious mumbo-jumbo. He is Lord in my life. I give Him control. I give Him control. And don't be guilty of settling for $3 worth of God. Don't you dare settle, beloved. Man, if I could send you young people away with anything, it would be don't you ever settle. Don't you settle for some small manageable Christianity. Man, you get on the heels of Jesus and you never stop following Him. You hang on to Him and don't you ever let Him go. And you go do great things. Great things for your few moments upon the earth. Go do great things. In the name of Jesus. And you know what? You will. All of you. You will. Young, old, in between. You will. If you have sanctified Christ as Lord in your heart. If He's bigger in your heart than anything else, <laughs> you, can do this, you can do this text. You can be zealous for what is good and you can be fearless before men and you can bring glory to your God. Let's pray together. Lord, we love You. You're simply calling us to joy. I know we're slow. I know we're hesitant. I know we're afraid. Religion's so much easier. but You're calling us to joy. Your joy, as You tell us in the Gospel of John. You give us Your joy. Your joy. As we believe and obey Your joy. Help us, Lord. Each one of us in this room, we have our own weaknesses, our own struggles, Great King Jesus, we pray, heal us, change us, conform us into Your image. Lord, teach us how to walk mighty upon the earth. Beautiful sons and daughters of God, 
Teach us, Lord. We understand what Your Word tells us. We understand that we, we're a vapor. We understand. Help us, Father. We can do all things. We can do everything. In Christ, who strengthens us, He is our Lord. He is our God. I pray, Father, that we would go and live like it this week. That we might be asked and we might respond. My hope is Jesus. My hope is King Jesus. We praise You, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. Yeah, let's do a, let's do a song.